If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then whatever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For Paris is a movable feast. So goes Ernest Hemingway's famous quote about the time in the French capital during the 1920s. While a hundred years have passed and a different time to Hemingway's post-World War I visit, it is still a haven for artists, raconteurs and misfits and a playground for gifted, driven and adventurous individuals. Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind is the only podcast you will ever need for all your obscure historical facts, cultural infusions and the incredible and ever-expanding world of medical oncology. Our listeners might be wondering how a Hemingway quote, a novelist with a strong influence on 20th century fiction, has with today's special guest. Keep listening to find out why. It might surprise you. But before we begin, I am accompanied by my remarkable and charismatic co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. How are you, my dear friend? I'm good, Josh. I love your cultural introductions, but also your uh, best BuzzFeed interpretation. Your best (laughs) BuzzFeed impression, I should say. Thank you. For today's episode, Michael Fernando will be known as Mikey. Just when we're talking about who we're talking Just to, to. differentiate, yes. I Just was differentiate. I was thinking that as we were starting. So today we are lucky enough to be interviewing the one, the only, the irresistibly gorgeous Dr. Michael Krasovitsky. But to introduce Michael is a difficult proposition for someone with such varied interests and a broad range of pursuits. But I'm always ready for the challenge. But before I do, Michael, how are you this evening? You know, after that introduction, I couldn't be better. So thank you, gentlemen. An absolute pleasure to be here. Amazing. And it gets better. We have not finished the introduction today. So Michael Krasovitsky, we'll go by Michael just to shorten all of that. Um, He is a conjoined senior lecturer through UNSW. Michael Ducks his MBBS in 2013, which is his medical medical degree, and took a bit of a different route to get there with an undergraduate in the Bachelor of Arts with a major in French. This is a guess. After specialising in medical oncology and completing a Master's of International Public Health with a focus on biostatistics and epidemiology. In 2022, he did the unthinkable and obtained a position working as a geriatric oncologist, supportive care and toxicity specialist at St. Vincent's Hospital here in Sydney, also known as the King of Corn Cancer Centre. Prior to to that and during the pandemic, he completed two fellowships, one at ARC and the second, I think, at the Kinghorn, but I'm happy to be corrected. But we're not done. As if this wasn't keeping the man busy enough, Michael is the chair of the Geriatric Oncology Emerging Experts and Research Group, as well as a member of the COSA Geriatric Oncology Executive. On top of that, and I swear this is my final little bit, Michael is also involved in a charity called Cancer Chicks that supports, empowers, and enhances the lives of young women aged 18 to 35 affected by cancer with severe chronic and terminal illness through resources and community engagement. Michael, I haven't even gone through the specialties when it talks about what you actually treat in oncology, but I'd love to know how did I go with your little introduction? Did I get most of it right? You got all of it right. I feel incredibly flattered flattered and embarrassed, but I appreciate it greatly. So thank you both. 
I did not bring up your lovely um, article through uh, University of Sydney that talked about driving under the influence. Uh, There have been a myriad (laughs) publications with my name attached, half of which I'm very proud of, the other half of which I'm deeply embarrassed of. Thank you kindly for bringing up that dichotomy. You you wouldn't be a you wouldn't be a well published uh, a- academic, Michael, if you didn't loathe half of your work. I feel Indeed. like that's, that's in a charter somewhere. It's a badge of honor, I dare say. Um, so, Michael, you've you've had a a, a storied uh, path to medical oncology, but how what what was going through your mind where you you uh, obviously very much have a passion for arts, humanities, and, you know, uh, some might draw a link between communication in an artistic format and communication in a patient oncology format. But where was the, what was the moment where you decided to jump from from a, a, a career in the arts, a career in, in language and international relations to medicine? Because that's that's a hell of a, hell of a gear change. Uh, it is a gear uh a gear change. So I went through high school thinking that science was incredibly silly. I had no interest in it. I thought (laughs) scientists were huge nerds. I didn't know why anyone would devote their, their lives to something as banal as science. And as aforementioned, I, I chose to specialize more in the humanities and I focused particularly on French and history, and that informed my decision to study arts languages. And I did a double honours in French and history and spent part of my degree in Paris. And I absolutely loved that time of my life. And I thought it was interesting and engaging and fulfilling. What I think I found when I was doing my honours year in French and history was that I was looking at the world from a really macroscopic level and what I was examining was essentially policy and movements of change within the world and I really began to miss the micro. I began to miss the individual and the person and I'd always flirted with the idea of medicine so I thought I would engage in the process of thinking about medicine And then before you knew it, well, certainly before I had, uh, I think, made any conscious decision, I was studying medicine and loving every moment of it. Interestingly, I think I do still look back at my aversion to science with some, (laughs) with some, um, both some hesitation and some validation, because I would not call myself a scientist today. I would call myself a doctor. And I would like to think that I focus more on the art of medicine than the science of medicine. That is quite a profound realisation, Michael. And I think us in the medical oncology sphere, especially through our training, definitely struggle with which side are we going to align with. Um, Internationally, many people go for a pure academic or research route and then there are others who I guess shun that and go purely for the clinical and it seems you are somewhat straddling a very fine line between the microscopic but also looking at that evidence to really treat people. 
what I would love to hear from you is yes, you found the pursuit of medicine amazing. And, you know, you essentially sounds like you fell in love with it without realizing, but why medical oncology? There is a million specialties that have great interaction with people and oldies or the elderly, as we will get to in a little bit and a lot of advocacy that's needed, but why, why medical oncology? So there are two main reasons that I chose medical oncology. The first is really, I'd like to, I'd like to say that it was more complicated than this, but in essence, it was just my experience with the patients. I think cancer is an incredibly leveling experience. And in medical oncology, the specter of death seems to hang over almost everything that we do, obviously most profoundly in the advanced cancer space, but to a certain degree in the early cancer space as well. And I found that going on the journey navigating life and death with individuals was a really profound one. And it really reminded me of the inherent strength of the individual. And I think the other reason that I chose medical oncology is that it is the par excellence example of the mixture between a science and an art. It is highly scientific and we are making such incredible breakthroughs in our field that we as a community should be incredibly proud of. But at the same time, when push comes to shove, we are two humans in a clinic room talking about concepts and factors and fears that define one's life and one's death. And I think there's a real art to that. And that really sacred space is not a scientific one. It's a highly human space. And I appreciate both of those elements. I'm sure there are many uh, deep thinking and profound philosophers who would love to sit down and have a conversation with you about that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, approach, Michael, because that's, that's very much a bringing, as you say, the human element into something that is is frequently, as as our podcast has been, you know, uh, obsessing over hazard ratios and percentages and curves and stuff. Uh, and we've said on the show before that it's very, very easy amidst all of that to miss the fact that ultimately you are having a conversation with a patient. And as you say, uh, very, very uh, clearly having a uh, arguably one of the most profound and important conversations in terms of how it affects their their life and and in the later stages much like your career though we're, we're, we're going from the macro to the micro so we've gone medicine we've gone medical oncology but you're you're a uh, shall we say an emerging breed of oncologist as the population ages there's an increasing realization that uh, elderly people uh, who have cancer are a growing patient base and they have their own little quirks and considerations and they're often incredibly complex uh through through decades of what i like to call good living but what what uh, dragged what attract you to you having gone you know gone from medicine to medical oncology for those those very sort of personal human reasons was it a similar thing that that further drew you to geriatric oncology uh, there were a number of things that attracted me to geriatric oncology, and I think that many of those factors mimic the factors that drew me to medical oncology. 
I think geriatric oncology of all the disciplines within cancer medicine is the most philosophical and the most existential because as well as dealing with life and death, we're also dealing with experience and inexperience, a great wealth of experience in the domain of life within um, one's social life, one's cultural life. But at the same time, we're dealing with a very acute period of inexperience, which accompanies the diagnosis of cancer and the journey that individuals go on when diagnosed with cancer. And I find the interplay there between goals, expectations, fears, wishes, life, death, a really powerful, uh, a really powerful space. I think the other things that drew me to geriatric oncology were the realisation that our treatments are not studied within a cohort of older individuals who in fact make up the majority of our patients and therefore our knowledge of how to properly assess these individuals and how to treat them medically, oncologically and holistically is poor. And, and finally, I think that recognising the importance of older individuals within cancer medicine, I think reflects a very important shift that our society needs to make in identifying and celebrating the importance of older individuals. And I always felt a very strong uh, advocacy link between those uh, individuals I see in my clinic and older people I see in my day-to-day -day life. Finally, and this is perhaps a bit of a side point, but geriatric oncology is the most fantastically interesting field of oncology because you are dealing with such interesting physiology, it's such interesting patients with so much life experience who are also developing really interesting cancers. So mm. scholastically, I find it very interesting. Michael, there are so many things that we can dive into right now with just the two sentences you just said. And I got all of my dot points, but I'm going to go a tiny bit off script. You mentioned some pivotal challenges of geriatric oncology being changing physiology, lack of robust research, and really patient expectations. In your day-to-day -day practice, and something we don't do much in our podcast, but I want to talk to you about how do you marry the research that we do have with treating these patients? As an example, and we don't have to choose a scenario, but someone with, let's say, metastatic colorectal cancer who's 85, but, you know, was previously gardening, going to community groups, and otherwise, you know, let's say robust young lady of 85. Maybe would you be able to talk us through your process? Because this is something we all struggle with, with patient expectations, mm. with doing no harm. And I think oncologists have a habit of being like, this is the latest and the greatest treatment that will give you a 0.1268% per survival advantage. That's a, that's a really fantastic and interesting question and probably is the basis of the entire field of geriatric oncology. I will try my best to summarise it briefly. I think, In three sentences or less. <laughs> no, no, I, look, I think you're absolutely right when you give that scenario. We'll take an 85-year-old woman 
And you're absolutely right. There is a real population of medical professionals who will say, guess what? The odds ratio for recurrence-free survival is 0.76, indicating X, Y, and Z, and let's use that treatment regimen and that treatment paradigm to inform how we move forward. And similarly, there is a very significant proportion of the profession who will not even begin to contemplate that because they see the number in front of them, 85. And that, I think, speaks to one of my pet passions, which I hope we'll come back to, but we perhaps may not, which is about entrenched ageism within our profession. And I would encourage all of your listeners to think about how they have heard older people reflected in the world and the terminology that we use to think about older individuals. So I think oncology has these two camps, people who are highly committed to the relative benefits based on a drug's pharmacology in the patient population. And we have individuals who are dismissive of individual patient expectations because of an age. And one of the things I think that informs geriatric oncology profoundly, and which I think informs other fields of oncology as well, is that as well as navigating that ageism and those relative risks, we're also navigating the patient expectations, desires, and their opinion on quality versus quantity a lot of the time. And so when I go into these multidisciplinary meetings where we're talking about giving a 92-year-old adjuvant chemotherapy for triple negative breast cancer, the thoughts that go through my head are, well, who is this person and what is their function? Does this woman have other life-limiting comorbidities which are going to reduce the effect, the net positive effect of adjuvant chemotherapy? Do they have comorbidities that are going to impact the safe delivery of therapy and vice versa? Is the safe delivery of chemotherapy in fact going to create comorbidities that may impact on that person's quality of life? And I think really significantly in the geriatric population, I wonder what the individual wants. There are 92-year-old individuals who are suitable for adjuvant chemotherapy in triple negative breast cancer. And similarly, there are 52-year-old individuals who are not suitable for adjuvant therapy for triple negative breast cancer. And when I see patients in my clinic, I really try my very best to go in with an open mind and not start my letters with Janine is a 96-year-old woman because that is a number that actually reflects nothing. I think there's been a bit of a reversal of, of uh, um, roles here. Normally we're the ones dangling the tasty hooks uh, in these interviews, but there was so many juicy tidbits in your answer there. And I, I couldn't leave this question of, of inherent ageism and, you know, unintentional, unconscious ageism. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that everyone who's practised for any amount of time in our profession or any, any medical profession will have, if not in, in inadvertently been party to those sorts of thoughts, but at least witness them. And, you know, they've come in, they come in many forms, you know, the, oh, this, this man is 
85 years old. The median age is, the median survival is 76, so what are we trying to achieve? Or, you know, this this lady is 92, she's a good 92, but she's still 92. The implication being that she's really good considering, or she's better than we expect, but expect. But the minute you stand her up in a strong breeze, she's going to completely collapse. How? What is your, I guess... Uh, and these sorts of phrases are, are bandied about in MDMs, as, as you will be inherently aware. I guess, what is your response or rebuttal to those sorts of things? And, uh, you know, despite not being, quote unquote, in your own words, scientifically inclined, I'm sure you do have uh, uh, measures and potentially tools, experience, those sorts of things to look for. And you mentioned, you know, life-limiting comorbidities, uh, issues that are going to uh, impact administration um, and and inherent risks of of side effects of treatment. But how? What is your rebuttal to these sorts of bandied about phrases? And and what sort of do you use? I guess if if we're thinking if, about this as a debate, almost sort of thing. Um, what what sort of evidence, quote unquote, do you use to to um, dispel the the notion that this 92 year old cannot have adjuvant chemotherapy for a breast cancer because she's 92. Thank you Michael. Uh, so you've you've allowed me to have a soapbox on ageism and I appreciate that greatly and I look I couldn't to... let you I couldn't let you go without your soapbox Michael. <laughs> and look I, I won't belabor the point but I think there are a few things to say. So Healthcare and cancer care exist in a society that devalues the experience of older people and pathologizes it. And I think one only needs to reflect on the death of Her Majesty the Queen to recognize that as a society, we do not recognize older age as a physiological component of life. And as your listeners may be aware, the cause of death listed on the Queen's death certificate was old age. And that is in fact a useless term because one cannot die of being 26 and one cannot die of being 92. And what as a society gives us the right to pathologise old age as a cause of death? And would we feel comfortable seeing cause of death being young on a death certificate? We know that ageism is incredibly common. Uh, In a study that was published by Alan and his team last year, it was uh, found amongst more than 2,000 US adults between 50 and 80 that 93% experienced one or more forms of everyday ageism and that the majority of those forms of ageism were internalised ageism which means that after a lifetime of being told that old is bad, you have accumulated the notion that old is bad and it has become entrenched within you. I also think that one of the thoughts that goes through my mind when I sit in an MDT is that as a society, but also as a community, we hold an an anti-old association. And there was a fantastic study that was done by Neil and his colleagues last year where there were a series of questionnaires and interviews performed amongst healthcare workers working in breast cancer. And it was found that 90% of healthcare practitioners 
who were both nurses and medical professionals, held a moderate to severe anti-old implicit association, which meant that 90% of clinicians working in the breast cancer space felt negatively about older people. And that study was incredibly interesting because it also suggested that the majority of professionals felt that older people would not want to know the same amount about their diagnosis as younger people and that they would be less able to cope with that diagnosis. And we know about this in lots of different cancers. In pancreas cancer, even when adjusting for the uh, confounders of performance status, comorbidities, functional status, home status and medications, we know that the odds ratio of receiving anti-cancer therapy for pancreas cancer, um, if you're over the age of 65, is 0.14 when compared to people under 65. Um, we know that the rates of screening are less. We know that the rates of histological diagnosis are, left, are less. Excuse me. And so we know that ageism exists and that it's everywhere. So what is my rebuttal when I hear people saying negative things about older people in MDTs? I have a number of rebuttals. My first is that, one, the person speaking is more likely than not to hold an anti-old bias. Two, the other people in the room are more likely than not to hold an an anti-old bias. And three, the person being presented in this MDT is fictional. I cannot see them. I cannot talk to them. They are one clinician's interpretation of that person's life journey and pathology. And there are components of that journey that are more objective than others. For example, one might argue that radiology or pathology are objective, though we know that that's not true. But when an individual is presented by a clinician in an MDT, it is a fictional presentation of a person. It's a disempowering presentation of a person often because they are not in the room. And so when I hear people speak badly about older individuals, I recognise that as a structural flaw in the way that we navigate multidisciplinary meetings. And I recognise that, in fact, consciously or unconsciously, the majority of people in the room will hold a bias against older people. That was a long answer. My apologies. I'll try and be, I'll try to uh, focus on brevity moving forwards. No, this is great. <laughs> You're doing it for us, Michael. Um, Michael, we, I, we want you to speak at, speak at length. This is, this is, right. this is your, your interview. We're just here to sort of uh, point you in a direction. So please well, facilitate <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to put a statistic to the table. I was doing some research the other night and people who are diagnosed with cancer are generally older. To put that into context, about two-thirds of cancer diagnoses are over the age of 60 and about 50% are over the age of 65. For the trainees coming through and even the specialist, Michael, what are a couple of tools you could potentially tell our audience to advocate for their older patients in a specialty and probably culture that doesn't value, not that it doesn't value time, that is time poor 
and pressure, I guess, high? Again, great question. There are some really, really, really simple tools that one can use. I'll start by saying that no tool is better than a thorough history. Uh, if you're interested in geriatric oncology, you should think of every patient in front of you as a long case from the physician's exam. And using gestalt and experience, one is able to ascertain the majority of information that they need. However, there are some really, really useful tools that can be brought into the clinic. So the Geriatric 8 tool is standard in many practices in Australia and particularly in France and other parts of Europe. It's a very, very simple tool that you can look at from the internet or you can memorise because it's incredibly short. It's a 17-point scale that gives you an idea about the evidence, that gives you an idea about the risk of frailty or the presence of frailty. And the magic number to remember is 14. So if you have a score of 14 or less, you should begin to think that that person has vulnerabilities associated with ageing and that they require further discussion about what those vulnerabilities may be. Another very good tool is the Vulnerable Elders Survey. Again, this is a short tool. The score is out of 10. Gives you a very good idea about that person's baseline level of function, as well as the uh, functional limitations that may be at play and how those limitations may in fact increase vulnerability or frailty. Both of those tools are incredibly useful, though they have limitations, namely both include chronological age. And that's a point of much discussion within the geriatric oncology community. Nonetheless, the evidence supports the use of both of those tools. If you're concerned about memory, there's no special tool, actually. It's what we've learnt throughout our training. There are tests like the short blessed test, the mini cog, the mocha, the mini mental, the rudas. These are all tools that we're familiar with and in fact can be brought quite quickly into the clinic. And then there are a variety of perhaps more advanced tools, I dare say, which look specifically at the nuances of an individual's basic functions and how they're completed, the nuances of more complex functions, the idiosyncrasies of social support, there are tools available for all of those domains. And of course, there are specific tools looking at the risk of systemic therapy toxicity for patients with cancer who are of an older age. And those scores are the CRASH score and the CARG, CARG score, uh, which was first elucidated by the late Artie Huria, a very important force in our field. And though these scores are not precise, and though they both have their limitations, when combined with a physician's gut feeling, I think they really have their place. That's a, a veritable cornucopia of, of tools. And I, I think that, would, would you agree in saying that they, as you say, are a guide? They help you sort of... I guess, put your gut feeling into numbers, but also for our more junior listeners when they're faced with a with a patient who defies that number um, that 
is attached to their to their file and is often the second thing that people see after their name. Um, that these tools uh, help to uh, provide experience or facilitate that experience that is so important in making decisions based on uh, based on sort of not just the number, not just the as you say the long case issues list, but but the whole picture. I would completely agree with that sentiment. I think that using structured tools not only helps us from a practical perspective in that it is time-saving compared to delving into the specifics of an individual's strength and weakness profile, but they do dispel or assuage our concerns about treating or not treating an older person. And even though your gut may be telling you really strongly that systemic therapy is not the right thing for this older person, or perhaps even for this younger person, it's really nice to see that in a score. And given that our profession is full of highly rigid people, myself included to a certain extent, I think it's nice to see a number that corroborates your thinking. Apologies to all the flexible listeners out there. Of course, Michael, this wouldn't be an oncology podcast without talking about systemic therapy and chemotherapy. And I guess one of the things that we wanted to to pick your brains and your, your incredible experience was regard to specific chemotherapy toxicities that you might see or be more cognizant of in a elderly population. And obviously, uh, as, as you've said, saying an elderly population mm-hmm. is a bit reductive and a bit simplistic in that no two people are the same, even no two younger people are the same. But do you think that the simple physiological process of ageing, accounting and controlling as best we can for, you know, the myriad pathways that one takes through life, the bumps and knocks that one picks up through life, do you think that there, uh, when you're sitting down and speaking, uh, talking through a systemic therapy regimen, are there any specific toxicities that you sort of say, now I've got to think of this more for this patient who is older, may or may not be more frail than for, as you, as you sort of keep uh, coming back to by, by comparison, the 20-year-old? who also may or may not be frail because, of course, that what, that's what cancer does to so many of our patients, regardless of age. It's a fantastic question, and I'm going to give, hopefully, some practical points. So, you, so we know that falls in the elderly are associated with a significant mortality reduction and certainly a very profound morbidity reduction. So if you're thinking of prescribing taxane chemotherapy to an older person, that needs to be intentional. And I get very nervous prescribing taxane therapy to an older individual who has already fallen. And certainly if there are other risk factors for falling, that is a very, very nuanced judgment that I have to make. And I think that speaks to the physiological changes within our nervous system and our ability to rapidly accelerate those changes. We know that hearing impairment is associated with incident cognitive decline. And in fact, individuals who have baseline hearing impairment not only have a higher risk of developing cognitive decline, 
but are at higher risk of developing a rapidly progressive cognitive process. So if you're thinking about giving cisplatin to an older individual whose renal physiology has been altered by the natural changes associated with aging, you really have to think twice. Because if you are going to engender significant autotoxicity to an older individual, you need to be comfortable recognising that that may be associated with cognitive decline. So I would say to my junior colleagues, you need to think about taxanes, you need to think about platinum. I think all chemotherapy drugs can be altered by the physiology associated with ageing. And in fact, that is a bi-directional experience. Drugs can be altered by the ageing process and the ageing process can alter drugs. I think I just said the same thing twice. What I meant to say was that ageing impacts drugs and drugs impact ageing. And I think the, the big drugs from my perspective that I worry about are taxanes and platinums. A drug that I do not, a class of drugs that I do not worry that much about are the immunotherapeutic agents. Immunotherapy is tolerable in older individuals. And in fact, most of the data suggests that there is no increase in toxicity when giving immunotherapy to older individuals. Uh, immunotherapy prescribing should follow the same prescribing style as cytotoxic therapy in that we should not be giving systemic anti-cancer therapy, whether it be immunotherapy or cytotoxic therapy or targeted therapy to individuals have an ECOG performance status of three or more. Nonetheless, if a patient is given immunotherapy and they are an older individual, I feel comfortable that they will experience the same side effect profile as a younger individual. And actually, I often feel slightly more optimistic about how they're going to respond to immune therapy, given that you're activating a senescent immune system. So I do not worry as profoundly about immune therapy as I do about chemotherapy. And within chemotherapy, there are certain drugs that get me nervous. I have so many questions and I can't throw them all at you in a single episode, Michael. But one that has been two, actually, I have two questions, a two-part question here. I always used to tell my patients this story of an 87-year-old who had a melanoma and we gave single agent to volume app and he would still go out and play his nine rounds of golf and come and see me every couple of weeks and he was loving life and you know that was one of the most rewarding situations when i was a junior registrar being like i'm actually helping this man and he's benefiting which is what we want as oncologists to do to actually make someone's life better irrespective of their cancer diagnosis bringing this back to my question. Frailty is one of those insidious challenges that we have with treatment leading up to their diagnosis, but really moving forward. And I don't think we have enough of an emphasis. This is in pre-geriatric oncology and even the geriatric oncology about kind of really managing that. And I would love to get your thought process and how do you optimize people's frailty in the process of, you know, treatment with treatment, you know, you're not going to wait six months to optimize their physical function and get them to go do resistance training three times a week. You don't have that time, but what do you do in on a longitudinal time points 
to really make these patients as robust as possible so that they can tolerate their treatment. Thank you, Josh. That's um, a wonderful multifaceted question. And before I perhaps talk about intervention, if you'll allow me, I'll talk a little bit about the lay of the land with frailty. And so in the general population, the prevalence of frailty in individuals 65 and older is 10%. Uh, and that's for 65 and older, it climbs to between 25 and 50% if you're 85 or older. In people with cancer who are 65 years or older, um, the prevalence of frailty is 42%, so significantly higher, and the prevalence of pre-frailty syndromes is 43%. Um, The prevalence of being fit, what we would call fit, is about 30%. So the majority of patients that you see in clinic are either going to have evidence of pre-frailty or frailty, and the majority of patients you're seeing will be over 65. So that means that, honestly, when you look at your clinic list, you should be counting the patients who are not frail or pre-frail rather than vice versa. Uh, Frailty is associated with poor outcomes. So it's associated with an increase in all-cause mortality. At seven years, the odds ratio is 2.3, so a very significant decrement in all-cause mortality. And we know within oncological surgery, systemic therapy, and radiotherapy that frailty is associated with poor overall survival. So frailty is critically important. And there are lots and lots and lots of different ways that one can define frailty. And I'm not sure if you'll allow me to say the frailty definition, but I'm the one speaking, so I'm going to say it. Handforth called frailty a state of vulnerability to poor resolution of homeostasis following a stressor event. Our whole profession is a stressor event. We are, certainly is for me, um, we are dealing with patients who have been diagnosed with cancer, a fundamental and primordial stressor event, where they're giving them systemic therapy, another stressor event. We're taking them out of their home regularly, another stressor event. We're disrupting their social engagement, adding on another one. And we are causing psychological harm for many of our patients. So we are piling stressors onto our patients And in many respects, we have to accept that as a profession, we are inducing frailty. The first thing as a profession that we need to recognise is that it is our job to identify frailty. It is not outside of the realm of cancer care that frailty is identified. It is within the space that we hold with a patient and frailty is a significant contributor to mortality. And therefore, in a profession that is dominated by Kaplan-Meier curves regarding overall survival and progression-free survival, it'd be a failure to not recognise the contribution that frailty makes. How we approach frailty, however, is interestingly not as hard as people think. Because as clinicians, while we do a lot, it is in fact our colleagues who do much more work. So frailty is a multidisciplinary problem. 
And as with many things in this world, I'm not sure that the medical team is the most important. To address frailty, you have to have expertise from physiotherapists and exercise physiologists. You have to have expertise from your occupational therapist, your social worker and your dietitian. You have to have committed nursing staff. You have to have a very strong therapeutic relationship with your patient that will allow you to navigate the frailty landscape together. You often may need to call on the expertise of a geriatrician and you have to recognise and explain to the patient and all members of the team that frailty, like cancer, is not something that can be fixed immediately or necessarily comprehensively, but that as part of holistic, patient-empowered care, that every opportunity and possibility to intervene on frailty should be undertaken. So how do you intervene on frailty? Uh, this should maybe be the summary, the summary point. You get a team involved and you make sure that the patient is at the centre of that team and that they recognise that frailty is a factor at play here. And you slowly and methodically put in interventions, often as a parallel train track to your cancer management. Michael, I'm sure that you could give us a thorough, in-depth and highly engaging uh, hour-long hour talk on frailty in and of itself, because as you say, it is incredibly complex and requires a lot of a lot of manpower to um, to actually intervene on, as you said. The one part of frailty that I guess I always think of, and I think a lot of people think of, uh, because it's frequently, at least in my experience, and you touched on it before, but it's the most dramatic manifestation um, is falls. You mentioned it sort of with uh, with uh, relation to taxanes and. Um, and how they can worsen the uh, the uh, risk of falls. Do you have any specific guidance? Uh, I guess from a from a holistic perspective, not necessarily a, a medical oncology perspective, but a holistic perspective on fall. I guess recognition and prevention, because that's that's often been from when I've spoken to geriatricians you know it's it's been all about fall prevention because once the patient has fallen and can't get up for whatever reason then then frequently it's it's too late they've they've suffered uh, musculoskeletal issues that all important confidence is shattered so do you have any i guess both holistic but also oncology specific uh, pearls for our listeners to take away when specifically about falls uh, falls are a very important geriatric syndrome. I would argue that they're an equally important oncologic syndrome. Our drugs do terrible and quite impressive things to human physiology, uh, and I think particularly of taxanes, platinums, anthracyclines, and all of these drugs can engender falls and therefore they should be at the top of our mind. It's really, really easy to take a falls history you just ask someone if they've fallen in the past 12 months. That's it. It's really nothing more complicated than that. Um, and if they've fallen in the past 12 months, and you can ask another question, which is how many falls have you had? That's kind of the whole shtick 
to figure out where you're starting. A mentor of mine said that one of the most useful things that you can learn about a patient is how they make it from the waiting room to your clinic room. And in actual fact, we have a test that is essentially uh, taking advantage of that. And it's called the timed up and go test. It's really easy. Patient sits in a chair, you tell them to stand up, then walk three metres, turn around, walk back, sit in a chair. That's it. If you've got a watch and a chair and you know what three metres looks like, you can do a fundamentally useful test to assess someone's risk of falling. And you don't need to stratify it necessarily, but if you know the number, you can then get a guide, and there's lots of resources for this online, about the individual's risk of falling. And that risk is a conglomerate of different factors, including the timed up and go time, uh, as well as a number of other falls risk factors. I like to see people stand up from a chair. Really helpful. You get a really good idea of quadricep strength. And when combined with a handshake, which we're allowed to do now, you're actually getting a pretty good idea about someone's muscle bulk. And I think using those tools and some simple questions, you can get a pretty good idea about the risk that that patient in front of you has of falling. And based on their comorbidities, their cancer, and, their, and the presence or absence of frailty, you can actually get a pretty good idea about how devastating a fall would or would not be for that individual. So how do you approach falls? You should really watch how your patient gets up and walks into the clinic room. You should watch how they specifically get up from a chair as they leave your clinic room. You should ask them about whether or not they've fallen in the past. And you should think about cancer-specific, but also health and comorbidity-specific risk factors for falling. It's been a true tour de force I stole in Michael Fernando's term, but I, I like it today when we've spoken to you about the tip of the iceberg when it comes to geriatric oncology and the challenges. I'm very much aware of the time, Michael, and I would like to ask you one final question. You know, you are, by all counts, established oncologist now. You know, you have driven yourself into such an area of need that wasn't really even, not known, I feel that's not the right word, but wasn't even considered to be a big part of our oncological training. And an interesting thing before I ask you this question is that in Japan, um, I went traveling there a couple of years back and I wasn't aware there was a public holiday, but it's actually called Respect for the Aged Day. Now it's a public holiday in Japan, which celebrates annually to honor their elderly citizens. It's been going for 60 years really. And you know, it's incredible. And they use this day so you can go and visit your parents and your grandparents and celebrate what is something that we should really do in our society. But my question, which is very much a tangent to what I just said is, if you go back to your younger self, when let's say you were trying to go do your fellowship over in France and COVID hit, or even earlier on when you were a junior doctor meddling through the wards and trying to figure out your part in life, what would be a lesson or I guess some advice you would give your younger self today? That's a fantastic question, Josh. That's a really good question. 
I have stumped the no, no. <laughs> honey. You wish. Um, it's a really good question. I, I tell you honestly what my answer would be, but I'm not sure if it's the right thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. If I could talk to myself as an intern or a resident or a registrar, I think what I would say to myself is, Michael, you're wonderful, but you're not that important. And I think I would say that because as clinicians, we feel that we are at the centre of the multidisciplinary team and we, we just are not. That is just not how healthcare works. We consult and we assist and we help and we navigate, but we in fact do not do that much. And I think as a society and as a healthcare workforce, we are increasingly beginning to recognise that it is in fact the patient at the centre and that our job is to support the patient in whatever way we can, but not necessarily to agree with the individual, not necessarily to recommend a path that is going to be harmful to them. And I think as a community, we are now beginning to recognise more and more that in fact, the people that probably make the most difference to our patients are their family, their support networks, their friends, and then we're now within our services, our nursing colleagues and our allied health colleagues. And perhaps that's my advice because I do work predominantly with older people where quality is significantly more important than quantity. And even though as a profession we're pretty good with quantity now, I hope I don't offend people by saying this, but I'm yet to be convinced we're terrific with quality. And I think that recognising that we are not that important and perhaps appreciating that it is our patients and our colleagues who hold the key to quality is something I would have appreciated as a younger doctor. An appropriately philosophical, worldly end to a very philosophical and very thought-provoking episode. So, Michael, look, as Josh said, an absolute tour de force. We cannot thank you enough for sharing your wisdom and your experience, and you've used this word uh, so many times, and I'm a huge admirer, a huge fan of this word, your gestalt. Um, And we really hope that uh, this has been helpful for listeners who will inevitably, and it is an inevitability, encounter patients who are elderly in their clinics, and maybe this will, your wisdom will help uh, them in their approach beyond seeing that number. So thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. It's a wonderful way to spend an evening talking to these two wonderful men. So thank you. That's very sweet. We'll definitely have you back. And Michael, you're an absolute mensch. You should be very proud of what you're trying to achieve. Thank you. I appreciate it greatly. And thank you to all of your uh, your listeners for bearing with me. 
it's been it's been wonderful michael thank you so much so that about wraps it up join us next time on oncology for the inquisitive mind we are going to uh, examine a type of cancer that i'm sure michael sees in his practice very very frequently and that is the wonderful world of metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer so we hope to see you in a week's time take care Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.